please turn in your Bibles now to the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Mark is the second book in the New Testament. And we are in Mark chapter 8 today. This is part 2 of this passage. We spent just a few minutes in this passage last week, and we'll look at it a a little bit more closely uh, today. So Mark chapter 8, verse 27 through chapter 9, verse 1. My wife should be landing in Seattle right now. She's been in Hong Kong for the past week. So um, I want to publicly recognize and thank my mom, who's come here from New Jersey, to help me make through this week. If my sermon makes any sense this morning, it is because she was here to help with the boys. Okay, she is on the ground. That is great. And so the fight with jet lag begins right now. I'm going to ask you to stand, please, for the reading of God's Word. Mark chapter 8, 27 through 9, verse 1. Again, if you were here this past week, this is the same passage. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with the disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God has come with power. This is the word of the Lord. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray now that you would be, uh, you would be the voice that proclaims and explains your uh, beautiful gospel. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would also be the translator uh, and the interpreter to each one of our hearts. You know more than we do what it is that our hearts and our minds need from you today. And so we pray that you would uh, translate uh, everything that is said uh, for the glory of your name and for the transformation of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. I think if, I forgot maybe to mention this last week, but um, uh, Pastor Michael Washington and his wife Dawn had their baby about a week ago. So keep them in prayer uh, for little Brooks. And um, if you're interested in helping to provide uh, meals, send the church office an email about that, and we'll make sure to get you on that list. If you are a guest this morning, we are about halfway through a sermon series from the Gospel of Mark. And so you're, you're kind of jumping right in midstream, but that is okay. I think you'll be just fine. You're not... Uh, you're not going to be confused uh, this morning. If you're interested, you can visit the website and 
we have most of the sermons online there, so you could catch up that way if, if you would like. Uh, I think we have a slide uh, of the map just to remind us of kind of where Jesus is right now. Jesus uh, grew up in the northern region in Israel of Galilee. He grew up in the town called Nazareth. And most of his ministry in the first part uh, of Mark took place in Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee and some of these, some of these villages. Uh, but now Jesus has moved a little bit farther north. He's uh, visited uh, cities of Tyre and Sidon. And then our passage this morning takes place around the city of Caesarea Philippi. So you can see Caesarea Philippi kind of in the middle, uh, top third of, of the map. Almost uh, all of what happens in our story today happens in this region. Uh, and this is going to be important, as you'll see here in just a minute. This region around Caesarea Philippi is ruled by one of uh, Herod the Great, who was the evil king uh, when Jesus was born, by one of Herod the Great's sons, a man named Philip. He's in charge of this entire region. And there's a large Gentile population in this region, unlike a lot of the areas in Galilee where Jesus and his disciples had spent most of their time. This means there's fewer crowds around Jesus uh, in our passage. Uh, There's less opposition from the Jewish religious leaders in this particular passage. And our passage begins, Jesus and his disciples went went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. Mark is, I think, wanting us to remember um, that these three events, these three first-time events, Jesus being declared the Messiah, Jesus predicting his death, Jesus articulating the costly way of discipleship, that these three first-time events all happen near Caesarea Philippi. And to understand why this matters, why this context matters, um, I think we, do we have a picture of Pastor Michelle? I didn't ask your permission about this, sorry. So I'm asking your forgiveness now, I guess. Um, so if you just saw this picture of Pastor Michelle, many of you have seen it, and you didn't know anything about it, you, I mean, there's some things you could say about it, right? You could maybe make some guesses about what's happening in this picture. There's probably a lot that you wouldn't know. But if you had a little bit more information, for example, that Pastor Michelle was praying with other pastors uh, in front of Chicago Police Department headquarters, That would be information that would change how you think about this picture, right? If you knew that Pastor Michelle and these other pastors were praying at CPD headquarters less than a week after the video of Laquan McDonald's murder by a police officer, that would also probably change how you saw this photo, right? Some context helps you look at a snapshot like this and interpret it more holistically, more accurately. Does that make sense? Okay, take that picture down because I'm going to get in trouble from Pastor Michelle if it stays up there too long. I want you to think about Caesarea Philippi in that way as sort of some context that helps us understand these three events with a little bit more uh, clarity. So, for example, uh, Jesus being proclaimed the Messiah for the first time. Now, there were huge uh, expectations among the Jewish religious leaders about what the Messiah was supposed to do. People had different opinions about this, but people had opinions, had strong opinions about what the Messiah was going to do. And and to the point where there there was even a a temptation to force Jesus' hand, we see this in the Gospel of Mark, to become Messiah in the the pattern, in the way that people expected uh, the Messiah to act and, and, and to be. So if you're going to elicit a confession that you're the Messiah. Maybe it's better to do it away from 
people who might have very particular ideas of what that means. See that practical reason why maybe Caesarea Philippi matters? Or think for a second about Jesus' first prediction that he will be executed. Over and over again, Mark has the religious leaders of his day uh, belittling Jesus, harassing Jesus, undermining Jesus. So probably it makes sense to be out of their earshot when you tell your disciples for the first time that those same religious leaders will be complicit in your death, right? Until you're really ready for that to happen, until you're ready to take that on, again, practically it makes sense to be away from that spotlight. And then we come to the portion about costly discipleship. This is what it means to follow Jesus. And I want to suggest that at this point, Mark moves from using Caesarea Philippi for practical reasons to moving Caesarea Philippi for uh, symbolic reasons. And and I hope that you'll track with me in this. We're going to spend the rest of our time looking at this section of, of, of our passage, beginning in verse 34. It is likely that Mark is writing to a young persecuted church in Rome, not all that long after Jesus' death and resurrection. And, and by placing Jesus' instruction about discipleship near the context of Caesarea Philippi, Mark is trying to help them see a few things. And I'll, I'll start with this. I think Mark wants that early church, I think Mark wants us, to know that following Jesus is far more demanding than we've been led to believe. Following Jesus is far more demanding than we've been led to believe. Let's see if we can picture this a little bit. Most of Jesus' disciples were young Jewish men from the region of Galilee. This meant a lot of different things, but it meant at least these two things. One, they were used to being perceived as a threat. The Romans knew that the Galileans had a reputation for insurrection, for rebellion. There were people who came from Galilee down to Jerusalem trying to overthrow the Romans. The Galileans knew that they would be perceived by the Romans as a threat. Not only that, if you were from Galilee, you had a distinctive accent. And so it was hard to blend in once you started talking. This is why some of you will remember when, when Peter starts talking around the campfire after Jesus has been arrested, people recognize, oh, you must have been with him because we're all the way down in Judea, but you sound like you're from Galilee, which is where Jesus is from. So, so, so uh, once they opened their mouths, people would be able to tell where they were from, and those disciples were used to being, in that moment, perceived as a threat. Are you with me? Here's a second thing it would mean. These disciples, being from where they were, experienced very real and very deadly oppression. And maybe the, the, the most kind of poignant example of this would have been when most of these disciples were, were very young. In 6 AD, so maybe when they were like 6, 8, 10, 12 years old, kind of preteen years. In 6 AD, the Romans crucified 2,000 young Galilean men four miles outside of Nazareth. Who grew up in Nazareth? Jesus, right? Four miles outside of Jesus' hometown, when Jesus would have been three, six, eight years old, when his disciples would have been kind of same age range, 2,000 young Galilean Jewish men were publicly crucified for everybody to see. So they were used to being perceived as as a threat, and they had known legitimate and deadly oppression at the hands of the Romans. 
Okay, are you are you with me? Okay. I once, a few years ago, stood uh, in a group of about forty or fifty young people from the South Side, and I asked them. I said, "If you know uh, anybody who is currently incarcerated or who has been incarcerated, raise your hand." Everybody raised their hands. Everybody in the room. If you had stood in a room full of 40 or 50 young Galilean men and said, raise your hand if you know somebody who's been crucified, everybody would have raised their hand, most likely. This was a very personal, real, visceral experience for Jesus' disciples. Being a young Jewish man from Galilee definitely meant more than being perceived as a threat and experiencing oppression, but it didn't mean less than that. And it's to these young men who have followed Jesus to Caesarea Philippi to whom Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. You begin to see how this is a little problematic? Their families have literally been taxed into poverty by the Romans. Their friends have been murdered violently by the Romans. They themselves have stories of being harassed by the Romans. And now Jesus brought them to the center of Roman power in that region. A city that had been built by Philip to honor the Caesar. Hence the name Caesarea Philippi. Jesus brings them here and tells them that to follow Jesus will require taking up the Roman cross. These are men who who know that their very accent and their zip code makes them targets for state-sanctioned prejudice. And Jesus intentionally, it seems, brings them to the symbolic center of that state to tell them that following him requires picking up the Roman cross. You start to see how hard this would have been for them? How confusing this would have been. Let's let's push in a little bit more. Let's think about the cross here for a minute. Because when Jesus talked about the cross, he was not speaking abstractly. There were no, no crosses with liturgical cloths hanging over them. The cross did not hold any special spiritual significance for Jesus' disciples. Jesus had just told them that he himself would be executed, but he hadn't tell them yet that he was going to be crucified. The cross is just the cross, a crude Roman method of execution, something that had been used to murder their family members and their friends. But the cross was more than a method of execution. And, And here's where I need you to kind of lean in with me for just a minute. The cross was an intentional form of terrorism used by the Romans. When when the Romans hung a young Galilean Jew from a cross, their first goal, their primary goal, was not execution. There were far more effective ways to do that, far quicker ways to do that. No, the goal of hanging a suffering, dying, humiliated peasant from a tree was to terrorize everyone who knew him or her. New Testament scholar Paula Fredrickson, she writes, the point of the exercise, that is crucifixion, the point of the exercise was not the death of the offender as such, 
but getting the attention of those watching. Crucifixion first and foremost is addressed to an audience. The Romans had a goal when they executed people. Their goal was to remind the occupied Jews of their subservient status. Their goal was to protect their own privileged status. Their goal was to keep the Galileans in line, to keep them from ever even trying to resist or to rebel. A cross in that setting was an obscene political gesture, an unmistakable reminder of whose lives mattered and whose lives didn't. When Jesus told his disciples that following him meant taking up their cross, they would have heard in that moment, take up your instrument of state-sanctioned terror and follow me. And I'm guessing that that's a little bit of a stretch for us this morning because of the ways that we think about the cross. But they didn't think about the cross like that. And we need to take that very seriously this morning. What would you have thought if you had been one of Jesus' disciples in that moment? What would you have felt to hear the one you had come to trust calling you to take up the cross? According to the uh, Equal Justice Initiative, between 1877 and 1950, in this country, almost 4,000 black people were lynched. The Equal Justice Initiative calls these events racial terror lynchings. Because just like crucifixion, the goal was to terrorize. Now, now, now during slavery preceding these years, women and men of African descent experienced unimaginable cruelty. But generally, generally, they were not killed by their so-called owners. They were simply too valuable. At that moment in history, slavery represented a $3.5 billion industry, more than all manufacturing and the railroads combined. Our nation in that moment was literally being built on the backs of these women and men. But this shifts after emancipation, after the Civil War, after Reconstruction. Lynching of black bodies begins in in earnest at this time. In his book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, James Cone writes, white supremacists felt insulted by the suggestion that whites and blacks might work together as equals. Whether in churches, colleges, universities, or in the political and social life of the nation, southern whites who were not going to allow their ex-slaves to associate with them as equals felt that if lynching were the only way to keep ex-slaves subservient, than it was necessary. And if we think about lynching, and probably most of us don't, if we think about lynching, we tend to think about white mobs surrounding black bodies. And that was certainly the case most of the time. But in fact, anyone who didn't conform to the standard of whiteness was vulnerable. About 600 Mexicans and Mexican-Americans were lynched in the Southwest during that same time period for a variety of reasons, including speaking Spanish too loudly and in the case of women victims for refusing the sexual advances of white men. 
in October 1871 in Los Angeles, 18 Chinese men and boys were lynched by a mob of 500 white Los Angeles residents. For most white people, during this period, lynching was a necessary tool to maintain the social order. Cole Bleese was a senator and a governor from South Carolina, and he wrote that lynching was, quote, a divine right of the Caucasian race to dispose of the offending blackamoor without the benefit of a jury. In these days, newspapers printed announcements about upcoming lynchings. At times, 10 to 20,000 people would show up as spectators. Postcards were made of these events. White men standing proudly next to the corpse. White mothers prodding their children into the photo. Considering the similarities between crucifixion and and the lynching tree, helps us to feel the horror that the disciples must have felt when Jesus called them to take up their cross. James Cone goes on to write, both the cross and the lynching tree were symbols of terror, instruments of torture and execution, reserved primarily for slaves, criminals, and insurrectionists the lowest of the low in society. Both Jesus and blacks were publicly humiliated, subjected to the utmost indignity and cruelty. They were stripped in order to to be deprived of dignity, then paraded, mocked, and whipped, pierced, derided, and spat upon, tortured for hours in the presence of jeering crowds for popular entertainment. In both cases, the purpose was to strike terror in the subject community. It was to let people know that the same thing would happen to them if they did not stay in their place. I want to be really clear. I am not using the lynching tree as a sermon illustration. I am not, I'm not using the lynching tree as an object lesson to try to help you mentally grasp the cross. I'm saying this morning that the lynching tree is the cross. I am saying that being lynched was the equivalent of being crucified. I'm saying that if Jesus were talking to a group of American disciples in the 1920s, he very well may have said to them, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their noose, take up their hanging rope, take up their lynching tree and follow me. This is a very hard word. We have made it easy. This is an almost impossible word, and we have made it spiritual. We cannot water this thing down. We cannot over-spiritualize something that was in fact an act of dehumanizing terror. Following Jesus is far more demanding than we have been led to believe. And although so far we have this morning been focusing on the young Galileans who had personally experienced Roman terror, 
We have to hear that Jesus' words are demanding for everyone. I don't think it's a, 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 a coincidence that in verse 34, at the beginning of this section of, of the passage, Mark tells us that then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples. They're not in Galilee. They're around Caesarea Philippi. So who would have been in the crowd? Representatives of Rome. Those whose ethnicity and privilege allowed them to benefit from the Galileans' oppression. And Jesus doesn't choose a different image for them. There is not one way of discipleship for the oppressed and another for the oppressor. The cross is the powerful is for the powerful and the privileged as well. The women and men who profited from Rome's campaigns of terror are also called to pick up that very symbol of terror. I think Jesus has these privileged people in mind when he asks the rhetorical question in verse 36, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world? Rome had gained the whole world. The world was theirs, literally. The known world belonged to the empire. And Jesus says, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? The word that Jesus uses for soul is also translated as life earlier in our passage. I think Jesus is implying that those who have succeeded because of another's oppression have in fact lost comprehensively. Their lives are bankrupt and they have no trustworthy hope in this life or in the life to come. Their power and their privilege have blinded them and they are in a desperate situation. They have satisfied themselves with the fruit of another's oppression. They've become accustomed to cruelty and blind to prejudice. What makes it worse is that they cannot even see their sin because everything around them has normalized their idolatry and their injustice. Jesus' costly call to discipleship includes these women and men as well. This call includes the landowner and the business person, the government official and the tax collector. Each of these is also called to take up this symbol of terror. What does this mean? It means that that privileged person can no longer claim ignorance. That person can no longer keep a respectable distance. That person can no longer explain their privilege aside from those who they have oppressed. A person can no longer let themselves off the hook. Well, I personally haven't crucified anybody. No. If they desire the salvation that Jesus offers, then they're going to have to swim against every expectation the empire has of its favorite citizens. They're going to have to offer themselves to the cross as well. They're going to have to offer themselves to the lynching tree as well. Following Jesus is far more demanding than we have been led to believe. Earlier in verse 29, Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. 
And last week we saw, saw that the disciples, when they're thinking about Jesus as the Messiah, still have a pretty small vision for what this means. I'm guessing it's true for us as well. The disciples had a very small, specific political agenda for Jesus. We tend to have pretty small, specific spiritual agendas for Jesus. We tend to limit him to our hearts, to a few of our hopes. But the disciples' agenda was too small, and our agenda is too small, because Jesus came to save the world from everything that terrorizes it. What this means is that those who follow Jesus must follow him to the cross, to the lynching tree, and to every equivalent contemporary terror of our day. He calls some of us to take up the sources of our oppression. He calls others of us to take up the tools we've used to oppress others. When he was beginning to speak out against the war in Vietnam, Martin Luther King wrote, When I took up the cross, I recognized its meaning. It is not something that you merely put your hands on. It is not something that you wear. The cross is something that you bear and ultimately that you die on. Following Jesus is far more demanding than we've been led to believe. But if Jesus is in fact the Son of God, who has come to rescue the world from all of its terror, then following Jesus will also be far better than we have come to expect. Just as we have limited Jesus to what he thinks, what we think he will do, we have lowered our expectations of what he will actually do. Once we start to grasp the great cost of following Jesus, it can be hard to see how discipleship can actually be good. So to understand why these same horrified disciples eventually came to embrace the cross and call others to do the same, we have to consider the one who called them to the cross. Because you see, the life of faith, to which you and I have been called is not about an allegiance to a certain ideology. It's not an allegiance to a political theory or even to a theology. We are called to and by a person. We are called to and by Jesus himself. This means that we are called by the one who held the power of the universe in his hands and gave it up. We're called by the one with the privilege of deity who gave it up. We're called by the one who took on humanity's flesh, but not general flesh, not put all humanity in a bowl and shake it up and mix it up and pull out a representative. Jesus takes on particular flesh. He took on terrorized flesh. He took on oppressed flesh. He took on occupied flesh. He took on accented flesh. He took on abandoned flesh and ridiculed flesh and ethnically invisible flesh. 
in the eyes of the Romans, Jesus was no different than one of his Galilean disciples. In their eyes, he was a statistic and a suspect. He was a coward and he was a criminal. At best, in Romans' eyes, at best, he was a backwater peasant who needed to be kept in his place. At worst, he was a thug who would only respond to the empire's violence. Y'all with me? And Jesus is the one to call his disciples to the cross. He is the one to call us to the lynching tree. And though the disciples cannot see it yet, Jesus called them to this terrorizing symbol, aware that he must go first. What does it mean? What does it mean that Jesus willingly allowed Rome's apparatus of terror to crush him? It means that the Father allowed the evil that had long terrorized humanity to crush his son instead. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. I hope when you hear that now, you're not picturing this little cute thing that Jesus does inside your heart. On the cross, Jesus absorbed our sin and our suffering. On the cross, Jesus absorbed our prejudice and our pain our complicity, and our devastation by this world's terror. Cohn writes, a symbol of death and defeat. God turned the cross into a sign of liberation and new life. Christians must face the cross as the terrible tragedy it was and discover in it, through faith and repentance, the liberating joy of eternal salvation. The only reason that taking up our cross can be good is because Jesus took it up first. And in doing so, he robbed it of all of its power to terrorize his followers. This, should you be able to pick up a cross and follow Jesus? Should you, okay. Should you be able to pick up a lynching tree and keep following Jesus? What is the purpose of the cross? Death! What is the purpose of the lynching tree? Death! Jesus says, pick it up and keep going. Keep it up and follow me. Why? Because it will not kill you. It should be impossible to go anywhere with a cross. You don't take up a lynching tree and keep moving forward. The cross, the lynching tree, every form of the terrorizing evil in our world are meant to destroy us and instill fear and others. Coming into, the, into contact with the cross is supposed to kill you. Coming into contact with a lynching tree is meant to terrify you and everyone you love. And yet, because Jesus has already allowed evil to exhaust itself on his body, those same evils have lost any power over us. 
Paul says in Colossians 2, that after Jesus had disarmed the powers and the authority, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them on the cross. In other words, because Jesus was crucified, the cross has no power to terrorize his followers. Because he was hung from a tree, the lynching tree has no power to terrorize his followers. That does not mean that the powers and the authorities of this world are not up to their old tricks. We know they are. It just means that Jesus has already exposed their impotence for those who have eyes to see. Jesus has picked up the cross. Jesus has hung from the lynching tree. Jesus has been stopped and frisked. Jesus had been locked up and forgotten. Jesus has experienced the educational malpractice of an underfunded school system. Jesus has known the terror of drone warfare. Jesus has felt the fear of a vulnerable body. Jesus has been demonized because of his accented English and his immigrant roots. Do you see? What changes when the cross moves from being an abstract symbol to a thing that was meant to terrorize and destroy? And if Jesus defeats the power of that thing, then what cannot he destroy? What cannot he reign over in victory? What I'm saying to you is that by calling his disciples, by calling you to pick up the cross, Jesus has placed himself within every terrorizing tactic this world and its evil prince will ever try to use against you. And though he was crushed, he rose. And though he was pierced, he rose. And though he was battered and bruised, he rose. And because of our faith in this Jesus, because we follow this Jesus, we too will face this world's terrors and live. Okay, I'm going to take two minutes. I think there's implications for every single one of us. And I don't, I don't think it's too hard to imagine some of this. But for those of us who stand sort of with the Romans in the story, there's some hard implications of what we need to pick up. For those of us who've had the privilege to kind of live blind to what the empire does to others, the cost of discipleship is to pick up some stuff that will feel like it's going to kill you. We'll, go, we'll cut against every way in which you've been formed in power and privilege in this country. Are you with me? I think for others of us this morning who have felt the underside of this country, who know very well that the themes of slavery and lynching are not past tense events, can I say to you this morning that Jesus does not say, let the cross overwhelm you. He does not say, take, just take whatever the cross has to throw at you. Do you see that Jesus' call is an active call? 
Does he, did you see that, that he assumes that you are the initiator and, and not the representatives of the cross? Do you see that, that Jesus has made something possible in you that allows you not to be passive, but to actively engage and resist the crosses of this world? Are you, are you with me? Please do not mistake what we're talking about this morning. Jesus is not calling us to sit back passively and allow this world's evil to roll over us. We can engage differently. Why? Because we know that evil has been defeated. Are you with me? Are you with me? Okay. Okay, I'm done. Esther, you want to come up with your team? Let me pray. God, please, um, would you, would you um, settle in us uh, the, the, the cost of discipleship? Uh, forgive us, Lord Jesus, for in any way um, making trite the cross and its horror. Forgive us for, for over-spiritualizing and, and in doing so, uh, remaining powerless to the forms of terror in our world today. God, we thank you, we thank you, we thank you that we know forgiveness of our sins because of your sacrifice on the cross. But we thank you this morning that that forgiveness is far more comprehensive than any one of our individual lives or hearts. And so I pray that you would empower us, that you would empower some of us this morning to honestly evaluate our lives and to ask, where have I been complicit with this country's terrors? Where have I benefited from what I used to think was neutral, but now I understand is literally destroying women and men I love? You empower uh, some of us to, to, to ask that question and to hear clearly from you, God. That we would repent, that we would be turned inside out. I pray for those of us this morning who are feeling in very particular, specific ways, worn down and beat up by the, by the, by the tears of this world. pray for your healing. I pray for your word of truth to speak dignity and life. But I pray in the, uh, in, in the mystery of the gospel uh, that, 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 that we would hear from Jesus this morning. The, the only one with the authority and the credibility to call us to the cross. The, the, the only one whose experience and victory allows him the, 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 the moral authority and credibility to, to say, you need to pick this up. Or could we hear from him this morning as well? That you have saved us, but that you have also empowered us. That you have also given us marching orders that you have also uh, gifted us and called us to those places of terror in this world to be your representatives, to speak life, to bring hope, to proclaim that a new king has come. And whatever it happens to look like in any given moment, in any particular place, as Pastor Michelle prayed earlier this morning, there is a king who is ruling and reigning and making all things right. 
There is a king who allowed this world's terrors to exhaust themselves on his body so that we would live and could never be claimed by it again. So in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, would you set our feet on the path of discipleship this morning? Would you give us great courage to say yes to everything you're going to ask us to do? Would you you give us uh, once again the joy of our salvation that we would remember what we have been saved from but also we would remember what we have been saved for. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I invite our ushers to come forward. Um, That was a hard sermon for me to preach. That was a, a hard sermon to prepare. Uh, I'm not going to assume I know how, how, what kind of way it is to hear a sermon like that. Uh, but I would invite you to connect with Pastor Michelle, myself, or prayer minister uh, as we close in worship or after the sermon. If there's any way that we can uh, be helpful to you, pray for you, encourage you on this narrow way of discipleship. I don't know if I said this clearly enough. I think it's worth it. I think it costs you everything following Jesus. I don't think you get to hang on to any of your own stuff, any of your own agendas. But it's worth it. Anybody agree? It's worth it. It is the way of life. It is the abundant life. But can I... I'm sorry. I I am done preaching. Just one more thing. Okay, one more thing. One more thing. Do not expect to be affirmed by others for saying yes to the narrow way of Jesus it will look crazy it will look like you are stepping into some stuff that's going to overwhelm you that's going to kill you do not expect people who are not walking the narrow way with you to pat you on the back and say that's a good life decision that's not the kind of feedback you're going to get, amen so make sure you've got some other crazy disciples around you who will hold you accountable who will point you forward who will encourage you on this way, amen So Lord, take now these tithes and offerings. God, as we talked earlier, you've been so good to us to put us in a position to reach out to friends and family to to enable us to push forward in this mission as a church. Uh, Bless those who can give. Bless those who desire to give this morning. Continue to to increase the hospitable and generous spirit among this church. In the name of Jesus, amen.